Okay, so to take it back to the book, basically the next thing they do is they go to Istanbul um, to recruit this this guy, Riviera. Um, so Riviera, he's like this weird, like, amoral sociopath man who, like, is specializes in creating, like, weird holograms. Yeah, creepy guy. Yeah, extremely creepy guy. He's, like, an entertainer, but he makes, like, weird holograms of, like, strange, like, sexual things to, like... Get, it, a, get under your skin or get in your head. Yeah. Very strange. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting about this book and the writing style that, that challenged me while reading it is that they basically... The author likes to kind of introduce things without explaining them at all. Yeah, I found that really hard, too. Um, like, you know, for example, the ice, right? Like, he talks about the ice, like, 15 times before he explains what the ice actually is. Like, And I, I don't remember which one it was right off the top of my head, but I remember there was, like, something that he introduced, and he talked about it a bunch of times, and literally the first time you get a definition is, like, 70 pages after it was first introduced <laughs> yeah and i mean sometimes there's like pages or sentences where like five to ten new concepts are introduced with no explanation yeah and the language is very uh you know unique and kind of like you know feels it really puts you in a different place in time but it really puts you in a different place in time you know yeah it's like clockwork orange but not that bad yeah yeah, but similar, similar. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if, you know, some of that stuff was inspired by this book. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, for reference, I don't think we said it at any point in this, but this book came out in 1984. Um, so so that's kind of the context of, of this, when we're talking about, like, the weird, like, inceptions of, like, what he thinks, you know, cyberspace and computers will be. They're just starting to learn about like the internet and things like that it's like yeah. the very early days of that stuff um it'd be interesting to talk about like what he was wrong about and what he was right about once we're done just taking you guys through the the basics here yeah yeah it would be um the Istanbul thing I mean I don't think we need to spend too much time on that there's you know some shit goes on they freaking find this guy Peter Riviera they kill someone you know some shit happens it's probably not worth spending too much time there i thought yeah it, it just it is what it is some shit happens the creepy guy joins their joins their midst who can make these holograms yeah um and you know just guessing but he's probably addicted to making those holograms <laughs> yes i think so i think so <laughs> um you know that like song sweet dreams yeah it's like also from this era yeah it's like kind of related you know like, everybody's looking for something. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, so the next place they go is uh, Freeside, um, which is, like, this crazy, like, space station, like, escape for the rich. And it's also where the, like, this really rich business family has their, like, headquarters. The Tessier, Ash Tessier Ashpool family in this thing called Villa Straylight. So that's where they're headed. But on the way, they stop at um, 
the um, the like Zion thing. I want to remember what it's called. Um, do you remember what it's called? Oh yeah, this is like Rastafarian space station. <laughs> yeah, I love that thing. <laughs> I think it's cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's Zion. It's the Zion cluster. So they they go to this Zion cluster where it's just like this weird like Rasta colony in space, <laughs> and that's one of my favorite parts of this book. And and those characters, Malcolm and some of the others, are also some of my yeah, favorite characters. Yeah. They're just like weird like space Rastas, and they're like. They keep saying, like, I and I do this, and I and I do that. You'll be fine, mon. And they're just, like, <laughs> smoking weed in space and, like, rolling around listening to, like, Zion dub. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I thought that was a, a really interesting uh, a picture. Oh, yeah. It was... I mean, this book is, like, very idiosyncratic and unique. Like, almost everything in this book, like, I don't know, just really, like, stands out as being, like... It doesn't remind me of, like, other sci-fi, really. Yeah. And I bet you even more so when this came out. Because now it's like, you know, they, this book kind of kicked off the cyberpunk movement. Mm-hmm. And since then, a lot of, lot of you know, sci-fi has taken after this. Um, yeah. But yeah. So they hang out in Zion for a while, um, and they kind of, you know, practice in zero gravity, acclimatize themselves to working in it. Um, Riviera was doing something secret. And, um, you know, they were kind of hanging out. Uh, oh, one thing is, I think we should, we should probably introduce, like, Wintermute at this point. So, like, th- Molly and Case are basically trying to, like, do some digging and figure out who this fucking Armitage guy is and, like... Yeah, what, what this job is, like, really... Because this job is kind of, like, weird and shady. Like, they're, they haven't really done a job like this. Yeah, and they've done a lot of weird shit, both of them, so that says something. Yeah. Um, and through some clues, the first clue they get is just like Wintermute. Someone, one of the Panther Moderns just tells Case, Wintermute. I have a message for you, Wintermute. And that's it. Um, and then later, Wintermute tries to like call Case up on the phone. And it turns out Wintermute is like an AI. Um, and he is an AI created by the Tessier Ashpool family. Who's like a rich, like, you know, family. Yeah, they're like a rich business conglomerate family of clones. Yeah, yeah. Which is pretty weird. Like, the original Tessie Ice Bulls, like, cloned themselves, and now they're just all, like, clones. Yeah, which is strange. That's, I guess that's one way to do things. Um, I yeah. guess, like, you know, it's like, you know how some people have, like, Junior or in their name? It's like that, except their whole body, like, the whole person. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, so anyway, yeah, Wintermute has been established, but Case has been afraid to talk to him. Wintermute has tried to contact Case a couple of times, and Case has been like, hell no. Um, and they don't really know what's going on at this point. And they're hanging out in Zion, which again is one of my favorite parts uh, of this whole thing. They're just like trying to like practice hanging out in space. Riviera is also a junkie. Um, by the way, not just to like the holograms, but he's addicted to like heroin or like space heroin, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they go to Freeside. So Freeside is like space Vegas crossed with space New York. So there's like banking, there's like casinos and pleasure. There's a lot of rich people. 
there's this weird like villa that the Tessie Ashpool people own. It's like a castle in space, basically. Yeah. Um, and they go there. Um, they see all the like excess and richness around them, and they're kind of like stunned by that. Um, let's see what else. Oh, okay. This was an interesting uh, quote from this book that that I thought was cool. So, um, so they're inside of the um, room and um, they're getting ready in, inside of Freeside in this rich, fancy hotel because Armitage has these crazy resources. And um, Molly's like helping Case get ready to like go out into the world. So. Molly insisted on coating him with bronzer, saying his sprawl pallor would attract too much attention. Christ, he said, standing naked in front of the mirror. You think that looks real? She was using the last of the tube on his left ankle, kneeling beside him. Nah, but it looks like you care enough to fake it. There. There isn't enough to do your foot. She stood, tossing the empty tube into a large wicker basket. Nothing in the room looked as though it had been man- looked as if as though it had been machine-made or produced from synthetics. Expensive, Case knew, but it was a style that had always irritated him. The temper foam of the huge bed was tinted to resemble sand. There was a lot of pale wood and hand-woven fabric. So I thought that was an interesting quote, especially, like, this idea that, like, the rich things are just, like, you know, super, like, tailored to, like, look like they're supernatural and, like, real, because I feel like that's there like today yeah oh absolutely like i was in la recently and i was staying in this pretty nice hotel and that's exactly what it was like and i think i was reading this book while i was there and i was like (laughs) wow this is weird like (laughs) everything's like wood in here and like you know it's trying to be like forest themes or like if you travel there are all these like eco lodges and things now yeah they're like crazy expensive yeah 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 exactly um which i thought was interesting yeah, and just, like, you know, wanting everything to be handcrafted and, like, at the higher end of the spectrum as far as price. Like, you know, every stitch in, like, a really nice car is, like, done by hand or, like, everything's hand-painted, you know? Yeah. Yep. Um... So they're, they're getting ready to mount their assault on Villa Straylight to steal something. Yeah, they still don't really know what they have to do. They know that they're trying to get in there and do something for Winter Mute, but they don't know what. Um, they also find out... Did, did we talk about uh, Armitage's background? Oh, not yet, yeah. Yeah, so you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so Armitage, um, they find out that like he was in this crazy like military incident where he was like the sole survivor um in a war against the russians in the past his name used to be colonel cordo um and he was like you know so traumatized that his like brain broke and his personality shattered and the military like reconstructed him uh, psychologically and then he was shattered again by Wintermute, who then re- reconstructed him i think he was shattered again by the military first because they reconstructed him so that they could use him as a witness in the trials or something. Right, yeah. After Operation Screaming Fist. Right, right. And then he breaks again. He just, like, breaks down and kills the guy, the military guy who, like, 
brought him back and was trying to like pull his strings and reconstruct his personality yeah. so then he goes to like a madhouse in like france or something and he's literally like shaking himself rocking himself to sleep every night and like crying all day and shit like that yeah and then, then winter, winter mute jumps yeah. in yeah constructs armitage which is a completely, like completely fake synthetic personality yeah yeah exactly yeah. and sends him to do his bidding throughout the world that becomes relevant later as well um one super interesting side note is uh, at one point, uh, Case is talking to the construct of D- Dixie Flatline, um, who was at the first heist. The thing they broke out was this like construct of that cowboy, Dixie Flatline. And um, I'll just read from here. So they're basically talking about, they're trying to figure out, Case is trying to talk to Dix and figure out like what is going on and why the hell he's like in this situation like what what is the bigger picture here so okay well okay uh let's see here wait a sec case said are you sentient or not well it feels like i am kid but i'm really just a bunch of rom it's one of them uh philosophical questions i guess the ugly laughter sensation rattled down case's spine but I ain't likely to write you no poem if you follow me. Your AI, it just might. But it ain't no way human. So you figure we can't get on to its motive? It own itself? Swiss citizen, but TA own the basic software and the mainframe. That's a good one, the construct said. Like, I own your brain and what you know, but your thoughts have Swiss citizenship. Sure, lots of luck, AI. Um, so I thought that was interesting, just this concept of, like, citizenship of AIs and, like, you know, how do they fit into the world from a legal framework perspective. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I thought that was, like, a super, like, far-looking thing for him to, like, address in this book from 1984, right? It's like, if we have these AIs, you know, how, how are they, how do they fit into our legal framework? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that challenge will come sooner maybe than we think because like the point at which things start to feel human-like or seem human-like you know is not that far away in a way like AIs already are pretty convincing you know to a certain extent and like people humanize right like we humanize our pets we humanize like the environment itself um, we see patterns where there are none. So I think long before AIs are actually sentient, we're going to perceive them to be, you know, agents, like moral agents. Um, I don't know that I agree with that. Um, I think that the AI we have today is basically glorified statistics. And that's not to say it's not useful. It's extremely useful and very powerful. But the domains which we're really effective in are basically like classification, pattern matching, um, and we're okay at generating like reasonably plausible sounding text that doesn't actually mean anything. But I don't think we are going to be at AGI, like uh, uh, artificial generalized intelligence, anytime soon. I would be somewhat surprised if we saw it in our lifetimes. I, I would agree, but I guess my point is like far short of AGI, you could hit, hit a point where you're just like kind of like, you know, jerry-rigging together a bunch of classification algorithms um, yeah. or regression algorithms where 
you have something that like responds to you something that like you know can take what you're saying and generate a plausible response um and something that's also like consumer friendly and in the home potentially yeah um to where people start to like you know conflate you know and confuse whether or not this thing is like a moral agent i don't think we're gonna see like true agi in our lifetimes for sure i think it's gonna take a lot longer because i think there are like barriers that we don't fully perceive yet you know yeah well, that, that's actually interesting. I, I think that's fair. I, I think what you're saying is we might get something similar to, like, the Dixie Flatline. Yeah, exactly. Which is, like, this, exactly. like, weird collection of, like, someone's, like, thoughts, memories, and personality that they can, like, run through a bunch of, like, you know, classification and probability algorithms to come up with, like, reasonably plausible sounds. But then it tries to, like, laugh, and it's, like, this weird, like, bone-chilling sound that, like, scars you. Yeah, yeah. No, 100%. And I think, like... Depending on who you are. So as, as an example, right? Let's take like a policing algorithm that like predicts someone's likelihood of committing a crime. We already have things like CompStat, you know, which is like a statistical approach to like predicting um, areas where there'll be higher crime or types of crimes that are being committed. And I don't know all the details of CompStat, but, you know, we should do a podcast on it maybe sometimes. It's interesting. But the point is, if, if something like that got more advanced was based on AI I think the point at which people start to trust that would be earlier than the point at which that's fully effective I think we already see that today yeah, yeah. like there are um, AIs being used for sentencing guidelines yeah um, and they don't have any explainability because they're basically deep learning black box algorithms exactly they're essentially just uh, neural nets um, and they're not presenting the information as like, here's what we think to this degree of probability here are the error bars they are like, this is what you should do. Um, and there's a lot of really dicey moral implications of that. Um, because the thing with our current model of AI is it's all based on using historical data to predict future outcomes. Right. So, with something like the justice system, you have all of these biases that are built into the justice system in terms of how sentencing is done, in terms of who gets arrested, in terms of who gets charged after getting arrested, uh, what crimes different groups of people get charged for, and you're baking all of that into the AI and then it's presenting it as facts to judges, um, which I think is a very dangerous situation. Yeah, um, and lends extra credibility, you know. Exactly. So I'm strongly against that, actually. Um, and, you know, I, I read some good article about this quite a while ago, and I, I wish I had it offhand. But, um, you know, yeah, I think it would be an interesting subject for the future, but it's, it's yeah. pretty concerning. Yeah, but I, I think there's, there's kind of a double-edged sword there, right? So let's look at, like, you know, loans as a slightly more, like, boring and less, um, less highly charged topic. So as an example, like, let's say you take race-blind data, and you feed it into, like, an algorithm, um, feed it to train a deep learning algorithm that predicts who's going to, like, default on their loans. Yeah. If there's a disparate impact from that, but it wasn't, like, you know, directly based on, like, you know, um, you know, demographics that are immutable, is it fair for the company and fair for other people who are part of this, like, insurance program to, like, subsidize 
um, a group of people who are paying like, you know, who are not paying back their loans at a greater rate. Just because we're like, hey, there's all these different factors, we have to factor them in. Therefore, we're, we're going to actively actively bias the algorithm to protect, let's say, Eskimos. Like, let's say Eskimos have a higher rate of default when you like factor in all this information. Do we then go and skew the algorithm to, you know, help Eskimos out? You know. Well, I think we have to think very carefully about like what are our goals as a society and as an organization, um, and then what is the specific situation that we're talking about. I think that's the tricky thing. Is like I think the specifics matter a lot, and I don't think you can really talk in um, generalities about this. So, you know, for example, with the loan one, well, it's like you know, I think that. The way I feel about this is the place we need to advance in AI is like the explainability of yeah. the decision. Yeah. So if the model can say, you know, these different parameters are what contributed most heavily to this decision, then you can at least factor that in. If it's like, okay, this person is, di- you know, divorced because they're more likely to default on loans, this person is... Um, young and single young single or this person is lower income or um, this person has defaulted on loans before right versus this person is from this racial group or this person is you know a mother or something like that yeah Um, and also being sophisticated about like this nested variable effect you know Um, because yeah like if you have like so one thing I heard for example is African Americans, on average, are younger than other groups, mm-hmm. and age factors into crime quite a bit. So let's say you have an algorithm that doesn't look at race, but it factors in age. Now you have a disparate impact, but this is like kind of bidirectional issue. Right? Yeah, is you know based on that, is is there actually a nested variable of race, or is age the nested variable? You know, like what what's what's cause? I mean, I think age is the causative variable there, but it's kind of like. Trying to remove references to things like that can be challenging, I guess, is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, frankly, I think it's a place for human judgment. And I think the danger with the AI is, like, I bet even with this sentencing software, if you go talk to the data scientists who created the models that are being used, and you ask them, like, should I base my sentencing guidelines entirely on what this algorithm says? Like They'd be like, no. They'd be like, no, absolutely not. This should be a tool in your toolbox. There are these issues with it. There's these things. But I'm sure that the way it gets packaged up and sold is like this is, you know, a magical AI that's going to solve all of your recidivism problems. And then even more, even if the company in their sales demo is like to the bureaucrats who are going to make the decision to implement it are like, okay, here's why it's good. Here are the things about it. By the time it gets in front of the judge or in front of the police officer, in front of the DA, you know, all of that is lost. And what they see is I can plug in this person's criminal record. I can get an answer on what sentence I should give them. And then I give it to them because it's an AI. So it must know it has all the data, right? You know, but there's product and design like interventions you can do there. So for example, you know, you, you output like qualitative text instead of a specific sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Which is annoying. And you, you know, the user is forced to read it, but that's the point. Right. Yeah. Well, the thing is like, you know, one thing that I think is 
fairly common in the tech industry is various types of dark patterns, right? To try to take advantage of the users. And what are the chances that the company is going to do something in a way against its own self-interest by making it seem like its answer is less authoritative in order to do the moral right for society? Yeah, well, I guess there there's a lot of different questions where it's like, what is the growth strategy of the company and its peers and how to what extent is that growth strategy predicated upon just like being super usable like can you afford to have that reduction in usability to have an overall increase in efficacy um you may or may not be able to so for example if you're selling like control software for like nuclear power plants you can afford to have a reduction in usability to have an increase in like safety and reliability um, that might actually be an appealing feature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the question is, you know, how are you selling it? Who are you selling it against? Like, who are your competitors? So there's so many questions. Yeah. 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 Like Apple, right? Apple has like, do not disturb. It has like a screen time and all these features because it's kind of b- baked it into its value prop. Um, yeah. But it took a while for them to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. It's definitely true. It is interesting. Whereas on the flip side, like Meta, which we're now calling Facebook, I guess, is completely incentivized to keep you on their platforms as much as possible. And they're doing everything in their power to to do that. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want you to read Neuromancer. They want you to stay plugged into the console. Yeah, exactly. Whereas over here, we're trying to turn you into freaking Charles Darwin. (laughs) Joe ass on the beagle. (laughs) No computers there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, HMS Beagle. Our like key metric that w- that we're like designing against in our app is like daily active readers. Yeah, which is not on the app. It's it's like you're reporting to us something you're doing off the app, and we're trying to optimize that thing that you're doing that's off the app. Right. Using a small number of touch points with the app. Yeah. Yeah. It's like as if we were like, you know, you're trying to take a walk and we're like following you. We're in the bushes and we're like, you know, like getting obstacles out of your way because we're like tracking your every move kind of. Yep. <laughs> no, okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you see what I mean about this AI thing where like, yeah, like if you had that like Dixie Flatline AI, you, you, people, people who are less educated about this stuff might start humanizing it a lot more than we expect. Yeah. I think that's true. Okay, I, I found this thing. Okay, so um, that I was talking about where he introduces something and then he explains it like way later. So this is what page is this that I'm on here? One forty-five. So um, let me go back to where they introduce it. Um, so here he's talking about um, the. Armitage is talking to to Case, and he says, You're a console cowboy. The prototypes of the programs you used to crack industrial banks were developed for Screaming Fist, for the assault on the Kerensk computer nexus. Basic module was a Nightwing microlight, a pilot, a matrix deck, a jockey. We were running a virus called Mole. The Mole series was the first generation of real intrusion programs. Um, And then later, on like page 80... There's something about, you know, 
Uh, Cordo's team had dropped in in Nightwing microlights, their wings snapping taut in moonlight, reflected in jags of silver along the rivers Angara and Podhamenaya, the last light Cordo would see for 15 months. And then finally, on page 145... He says, Case watched a drone microlight bank gracefully in an updraft at the green verge of an artificial mesa, lit for a few seconds by the soft glow of the invisible casino. The thing was a kind of pilotless biplane of gossamer polymer, its wings silkscreened to resemble a giant butterfly. That's a great, great line. It is a great line, but it's literally 120 pages for him to explain what this fucking thing was. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm going to say this book is pretty confusing to read at times yeah yeah i mean it's 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 a great read because it's so vivid and it's such a like wild ride yeah but don't expect to like understand like every you know reference and every concept because again it might take 150 pages for you to actually get an explanation on what something is yeah and i did find myself reading and rereading certain passages just to like try to because again he'll use like 17 new words in like one paragraph yeah yeah and it's like okay what did I just read? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I kind of got like a gestalt with this book. Like I was reading it and I got like an impression. Yeah. I was like, oh, here's what we're doing now. Oh, now we're doing this. That's actually a good way of, of kind of uh, describing it. I think that is like like kind of how it is. Yeah. But, yeah. but I did actually, despite all that, I did really like this book. I thought that it was very vivid and the way he like described things. Like you said, it's very like unique take on sci-fi and it, it feels very different to any other book i've read yeah 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 and it's it's just like very like gritty and like vibrant and super different and no so the punchline is like yeah why, why is this ai like mysteriously pulling the strings in the background like what is this ai trying to achieve um so do we want to like explain like yeah uh, yeah go ahead jump into that okay so so right now they're in Freeside. Yeah, so basically like they're they're working up to this like final mission. They're gathering assets, people, um, you know, this Dixie Flatline construct, all this stuff, and they're trying to break into the Villa Straylight and get something for this AI. So there were these laws set up in this world like long ago, like through this Turing Commission, which basically said like an AI cannot get more than a certain amount of like intelligent and cannot um become self-aware yeah so t- did we talk about this no okay so yeah so tessier ashpool basically the way they got around this to create this super powerful ai to that manages all their businesses is they split the ai into two so there's really two ais but they're kind of one yeah um and Wintermute is the one who can do like sort of the manipulating of people and politics and stuff like that but he doesn't yeah. understand the emotional side I think or like memories or things yeah, like that yeah I think so and then the other one Neuromancer is the name we find late in the book can understand like those things more yeah yeah so basically like you know if they combine then Wintermute becomes slash Neuromancer becomes self-aware and has access to like you know basically being a, a full entity like a full living entity and also has access to a lot more power um you know intellectual power um so basically that that's what he's trying to get at through these like manipulations is he's trying to like unlock his full self-awareness that's like trapped in villa straylight in the form of neuromancer 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is pretty interesting. So then they, yeah, so then they basically try to execute this mission, like you said, to go and, and you know, free Wintermute from his weird bonds. Yeah. And a bunch of crazy shit happens. I mean, um, he, at one point they get captured by, like, the Turing police, and that yeah. was the quote I read at the beginning where um, she was basically saying, like, you know, for all of humanity, people wanted to make packs with demons, and, and now you are doing that, you know? And that's how they see it. It's like, you're going and you're trying to help this freaking AI, like, take over the world. What the hell uh, are you yeah. doing? And then Wintermute actually kills them all. Yeah. Uh, like, all of the... Turing police. Turing police while they're running through Freeside with, with Case. Um, and then Armitage loses his shit. His, yeah. like, fake personality starts to break, break down. Yeah, and he turns into Cordo. He's telling... Um, he thinks he's literally back in Screaming Fist, which is an original mission. He tells Case, like, you know, you're, you're done. Uh, just remember the training. Um, that, that's all we can do. And then, um, he's, uh, basically crazy. Uh, and he thinks, Case thinks he's going to kill him. And then, um, Wintermute kills Armitage. He launches him out through uh, an airlock. Um, so here, here's one question as far as like all this murder or one like thing to think about. So this idea of AIs as demons, you know, like making a pact with a demon. Mm -hmm. So unless like AIs are coded to have emotions, I feel like they'd be in a persistent state of like the McNamara fallacy. So like Robert McNamara in Vietnam mm -hmm. made all these decisions just based on statistics from like a high level view of statistics without really talking to anybody or understanding like the human reality on the ground in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So he had things like, you know, kill counts that he would assign where he'd be like, you have to go into these regions, you have to like kill this many people. And it was all very statistical and like data driven. Yeah. So I feel like without awareness, without personal experience, without like, you know, context, without information that's outside of, you know, outside of the digital world, these AIs could just be constantly having like a McNamara fallacy. Yeah. Doing things that are just crazy inhumane and out of sync with reality. Yeah. I think that's totally, I think that totally makes sense. And I think that's something that you see like throughout history, especially recent history, meaning last like 70 years or so yeah. again and again. Like one example is like, um, if you take a patch of old growth redwood trees and you apply financial models to it, um, they'll say that the most effective thing to do from an economic perspective is basically to clear cut the entire forest, sell all the lumber, um, and then sell the land. Um, w which is, you know, from a humanistic perspective, then you've now, you know, p potentially made extinct this endangered species of trees. Yeah. You don't have any long-term, you know, sustainability in your business itself, right? or in the forest, you've destroyed all of this habitat, all of the jobs that your company was providing from the lumber, um, 
you know, cutting and the sustainable management of the forest, those are all gone. But from a spreadsheet management perspective, it was the right choice. Yeah. There's actually a great case study on this, and it's the Sierra Lumber Company, and that's exactly what happened. Um, they were basically a renowned company for taking care of, like, their people um, and their forests. So they sold redwood lumber, but they were doing it at such a rate that they could, like, plant new trees and maintain the health of the forest in general. They would help educate their um, workers, their workers' kids. They would provide, like, health care, all of these things. And then there was a hostile takeover um, from, like, a Wall Street firm. And they basically came in, fired everyone, clear-cut the forest, sold the land, and shut down the company. Yikes. Um, Terrible. Yeah, terrible. Literally, it's, like, cartoon villain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's just an example of, of like you yeah. said, this this McNamara fallacy where like fallacy where like you can if you get too caught up in only looking at things from the statistics, then um, you can miss a lot of nuance. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing I liked. I don't remember where I read this. I think it might have been Reed Hoffman's podcast. Um, I don't remember who he was interviewing, but this person was saying like their approach is to, when they're making a big decision, is to collect a ton of data, a ton of statistics, analyze it thoroughly, really understand it, really dig into it, and then make a call based on their gut. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Because, I mean, the, the issue is, like, it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of, like, nuance and challenges here, right? Because on the one hand, you know, the signal to noise ratio like you're going to bring in a lot more signal using your overall intuition and awareness you're also going to bring in more noise yeah in that space of like you know signal and noise there's room to you know be really nuanced and make a wise humane decision that can't be accounted for simply with like numbers and statistics on the flip side there's room for self-delusion and rationalization yeah to give you the wiggle room to do the thing that you want to do anyway right so it's this complicated psychological dance with yourself to like navigate that and find a way to make the right call, you know? Yeah. 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 Which is interesting. And I think that's, you know, it almost goes back to a little bit to like emotional awareness, like being able to see that, that whole you know process going on in your own head to a certain extent, to be able to see yourself either rationalizing or, you know, misusing, um, the nuance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Or surrounding yourself with people who have opposite opinions too. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of handling things, um, and that's something that I enjoy about even working with you and on stuff is that we disagree on a lot of stuff and yeah. we're down to like hash it out. Yeah, I find that really helpful for sure. Yeah, yeah, like the voter ID stuff. You made some good points today. Yeah. Um, so definitely, like, was was a a, a helpful helpful take yeah we should just constantly do just like super controversial topics nah debate them out nah nah that's just like I'm not trying to just pander to the audience and just Alex Jones it up (laughs) (laughs) the frogs turning people gay (laughs) um well, I think it's people are turning the frogs gay, not that the frogs are turning people gay. That's his theory, but... Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it is what it, it is. It is what it is, yeah. <laughs> um, 
So I guess, yeah. So then they do this final assault on uh, Villa Straylight. It's super exciting. I'm not going to, like, go into it in too many details, but there's a bunch of, like, weird twists and turns, and it's super tumultuous. Yeah. Um, you should read the book to get that, because, like, it, we're not going to do justice to the way he kind of describes it. No. The way he, like, switches between, like, the perspectives of, you know, Case and Molly... Mm-hmm. Um, and their interactions with, like, 3Jane, who is the weird, like, Tessier Ashpool clone. clone. Yeah. And then Peter Riviera. Oh, one character I didn't want to mention was Hideo, who was, like, 3Jane's, like, assassin bodyguard man, who's, like, yeah. this crazy, like, badass, like, samurai dude. Yeah, yeah. He's, um, like, legendary and, like, you know, Molly knows who he is, like, even before she gets there, like... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, but that dude is badass, and at one point, you know... He gets blinded, um, and, like, the guy who blinds him is like, ha-ha, like, you're never gonna kill me now, and then Hideo just, like, laughs at him and then, like, murders the fuck out of him. Yeah. Um, because he's so good at killing that he can't, he can do that even when he can't see. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is awesome. that was an insane scene. That was a good one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but like I said, you know, I'm not going to go into too much detail on that final conclusion, like, climax, because I feel like it's worth reading to get that. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I mean, this is generally, like, a pretty pretty fun read. Um, yeah. I can get a little, you know, complex at times, but it's not, like, super heavy reading by any means. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it quite a lot. I would strongly recommend this book. I would say out of the books I've read recently... I would recommend Dune and Hot Zone over this book for my personal, just yeah, in terms yeah, of my agree. enjoyment of them. Yeah. Um, but it's worth it's worth a read if you're interested in like you know the future and like sci-fi and AI and like body modification and like you know virtual reality, all these things like all the things that we're kind of just like talking about lately are in this book. Yeah, exactly. And I think also if you if you're a fan of like the cyberpunk aesthetic, like you said, this kind of like gritty, like um dark side of sci-fi, it's amazing for that. Like he yeah. evokes it really powerfully and you really feel like um like you said this kind of gestalt of like being there and like what it's actually like and his yeah. vision of like this crazy like semi dystopian future. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah, it's like nihilist. I think nihilistic techno fetishism, like almost, it's a good description of the aesthetic too. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, any closing thoughts on Neuromancer? Closing thoughts on Neuromancer. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I would say, like, the biggest closing thought to me is just, like, you know, wherever you go, there you are, right? It's, like, the same, like, um, addictions and, like, you know, spirals of desire that people are contending with throughout history, like, back then and now and in the future of Neuromancer, too. Yeah. So it's just, like, you know, human beings grappling with their desires and trying to find find meaning. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um I don't think I can uh, phrase it much better than that. So uh, all I'll say is that uh, I would love to listen to some Zion dub and hang out yeah. with Malcolm. <laughs> Hell yeah! In, in freaking uh, space Rasta land. When is that gonna happen? We could we could have that happen like overnight if you just are like you know to be an astronaut you have to be Jamaican. <laughs> <laughs> Except then you get all like the posh Jamaicans. You're not gonna get like. Malcolm playing Zion Dove. Yeah, exactly. You know exactly. I mean? um, and the last thing I'll say is that we 
would love to hear from you. Um, we are been, hearing from you guys. Yeah, massive raids. Exactly. We've been really enjoying you know some of the discussions we've been having um, on email with some of you guys. So thank you for reaching out. And um, we've been having widespread giveaways. A lot of people have been winning big. All right. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> come on now. Come on now. That's There's just, a non-zero just, probability. Just, just tone it down. No, 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 let's so. just let's just we we don't need all that. <laughs> that's that's not true. There's there's no giveaway, but. If you email us now, when we have the app ready, we will give you free access. Yeah, that's safe. And we'll uh, give, away so that's a give away nuggets of wisdom. Well, yeah. It is kind of like a giveaway anytime you email us because we are giving away those nuggets of wisdom. That's true. There you go. But keep it up. Contact at rdmr.io. I might give away the password to my Bitcoin wallet with an undisclosed amount of Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely will. If you contact us, uh, we'll give you some bitcoins. We we won't give you any bitcoins. No, it's not. That's a lot. Not likely. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, hit us up. Yeah, and share this episode uh, if you like it, or share you know your episode of choice that you that you enjoy. Um, go to rdmr.io. Sign up for our uh, waitlist there for the app. Again, you know it's using. Let's just say cutting edge behavioral design and cognitive science to nudge you to read more um you know of your own volition helping you track your reading understand your reading trends and habits um and also supporting you with book clubs you know people drop off like when you're trying to do book clubs sometimes it's you sometimes it's like the person you're reading with so through our app we help you like stay on track for stuff like that it's a great way to connect with people you care about um and yeah what else that's it thanks for listening bye